Amen to that. Westmount, it is enough that Jesus died in these times. It is enough that he died for us that are his. Beloved, it is so good to stand here and be back with you uh, after some refreshment. Thankful for being allowed the opportunity to do that. We, Our family was in different parts, two very different churches, one at the farthest reach of this province, one at the farthest reach of this country, um, very different environments. You know, and as blessed as we were particularly to go across the country to God's country, as we would say, a wide open land there in northern Alberta, as much as we still talk about how free it is out there. I mean, to go a week without talking about pandemic is pretty wild these days, but we did. Um, I say this, beloved, to you. Um, there is one thing that was missing out there. You. And, uh, it is good to be back. You know, the old adjective is true. It's good to go away. But it's even better to come home. This is home, and it is good to be with you. So it's a joy to just be back and worship the Lord together. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jerry and Jeremy, for that. Grab your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Second book of the Bible. If you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in the rack in front of you. You'll see the one right there. Follow along with us. Exodus chapter 20. This morning, of course, we return to our study in this book, the second book of the Bible. And it was, lo and behold, exactly one year ago, kicking off last fall, in fact, that we opened this book. Remember that? One year ago we started Exodus. Now we're halfway through. We began with God's chosen people in Egypt. Do you remember the 70, Jacob's family, that we ended in Genesis, or that's at the end of Genesis? The 70 from the end of that account in Genesis that are now in Egypt. That's how the book opened. And there in Egypt, God's people multiplied, even under oppression from Pharaoh. There in Egypt, they were preserved, even under an execution order from Pharaoh. Pharaoh declared, remember, that all male Hebrew babies were to be killed upon birth. And we need to be reminded of this. That was a government order. A government order. And the Hebrew midwives chose what? To obey who? Pharaoh or God? God. They chose to obey God. Remember, it was the sovereign God and God alone orchestrating the events. His sovereignty and might, not just to preserve a people under bondage, but remember his providence to raise up a deliverer, a baby spared by God's hand. That was Moses. Moses then raised for 40 years in Pharaoh's court. Then, do you remember, choosing reproach, choosing exile. Moses seeking refuge in the land of Midian for another 40 years where he would find a home and a wife. Then that quiet, idyllic life, if you will, divinely interrupted, as so often happens with the call of God on one's life, with the call of God on Moses' life appearing, remember, in a burning bush on the mountain of God. That call of God where Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and then to Israel. The great I am. 
Yet that great name, we noted this in our study, that great name, the great I am, was nothing new to God's people. Yahweh, of course, reminded reminded Moses of this very fact in Exodus 3, verse 6. He said this, He was the God of your father, Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Hence, Moses, Israel, you know who I am. You know who I am. I am and continue to be your God, the only God, the eternal God. We recount how in that revelation of God, that call of God, remember the many protests. Do you remember last fall? Oh, Moses had many protests to the call of God. Yes, Moses had many excuses for not heeding God's call. Yet remember, this was not about Moses' will, but God's sovereign will. Indeed, God's will be done. And after the pruning, the preparation, and the patience, Moses was ready to stand before Pharaoh. And that he did, upheld by God, and as the text reminded us, like God himself before Pharaoh. As God displayed his power and might through plague after plague after plague, We had nine in a row, remember that, with varying degrees of hard-hearted receptions from Pharaoh, wave upon wave. And Pharaoh yet stood obstinate, stubborn, hard-hearted, from defiance to ignorance to remember false professions of repentance to straight-out lies. And so those nine signs and wonders gave way to the tenth sign, the final plague. The death of the firstborn. Every firstborn in Egypt struck down by God. The judgment dispensed on Pharaoh and his ungodly kingdom. None were spared except for Yahweh's. Yahweh's. Yes, remember, God passed over his people. Why? Because of the blood of the unblemished lamb. Do you remember that? The spotless lamb spread over the doorposts of God's people, covering them so that the angel of death would pass over them, sparing them from God's judgment. And we pause, Christian, as we recount and we remember, Christian, we read that in Exodus. That's where we have been. We read it in Exodus for God's people then, but you know that truth as well. As we consider how far we've come in this book, And how far God has brought you. And we know that is the reality. All of those that are God's know that that same reality is true of us today. You too had the blood of the spotless lamb cover the doorpost of your soul. You had that. The lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the only blood that can protect you from God's wrath. Unlike Pharaoh, your heart was not hardened to respond to God. Unlike Pharaoh, you received sovereign grace to turn to him. Thus, unlike Pharaoh, you repented of your wickedness and your rebellion. And unlike Pharaoh, the blood of Christ covered you. His blood spares you. Unlike Pharaoh, you are delivered. And like Israel, church, you are redeemed. Beloved, then or now, hear it, there is deliverance no other way. There's deliverance no other way. To be spared from God's wrath and escape judgment and escape hell itself, the only way is to repent, 
Turn now, lose your life now. Let go of yourself, let go of sin, and behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb in His finished, perfect work to do what you cannot. And believe on the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Again, deliverance is found no other way. We've seen that in Exodus. True today, church, and true then, Israel indeed, by God's sovereign hand, delivered and then free. But remember, not free to return to themselves. Remember, this is a key point we learned in Exodus. God did not liberate them to say, now go your way. You see that? I sprung you. Now go do what you feel you need to do. Not free to their own ways. No, remember the plan of God repeated to Pharaoh multiple times in this account. Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. At the heart there, some of your translations say, let my people go so that they may worship me. That has always been, and still is, Westmount, the plan and purpose of God for his people. Redemption, mark this, redemption for the purpose of worship. Do you see that? Redemption for the purpose of worship. That is why God miraculously brought his people through the parted sea, chapter 14. Remember, they immediately did what in chapter 15? They couldn't help themselves do what? But sing and worship on the heels of deliverance. They could not help but sing. Exodus 15, verse 18, what did they sing? The Lord will reign forever and ever. Who can stop our God? Of course, that worship, as it goes with humanity, that worship did not last long. Just six verses later, they grumbled. They grumbled for water, which they would do again in chapter 17. They would come under attack from enemies, Amalek. And in chapter 18, their quarreling would simply be too much for Moses and he'd be overwhelmed in the camp, not able to judge them all. At each time, Yahweh would graciously provide bread from heaven, water from the rock, victory over enemies, able men for Moses to judge with, the great provider, every time. And God would continue to bring them along, eventually, of course, to the mountain. Yes, the mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where Moses met Yahweh in chapter 3, and, and then where Israel would too in chapter 19. This time the call of God was corporate, and the purpose for these newly delivered people of God made abundantly clear. Consider again chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. It cannot be clear. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is God calling his people to keep his covenant A covenant with his people, remember, struck with Abraham in Genesis 12. And it's the same one in view here, the overarching. Talk about a relationship between God and his people. Same in in view here, but it's focused here. There it was announced and inaugurated now here in Exodus 19 and 20. The covenant terms are defined. To be God's people, here it is, Westmount, to be God's people is to be holy. To be God's people is to be holy. To be God's people is to be called out and to be set apart. But more, again, I pray this is automatic, to be set apart in what? Fully devoted unto the Lord. 
That's holiness. And listen, to be holy is to worship. But as Israel discovered, worship has terms. Worship has definition. Worship is a full body and soul response to who God is. That's what worship is. It's not compartmentalized. And this really, this truth sets us back to our text this morning where we've been. Listen again, we can't say this enough as we get back into this text and back into the concepts of holiness and worship. Listen, worship is not, as Israel discovered, just busting out the tambourines for a God moment after the Red Sea. That's not what worship is. Oh sure, they felt it. They felt like they wanted to do that. But the text then went on to tell us that it's so much more than a moment. Listen, I'm not saying when you don't feel moments of joy in worship. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's not just that. Worship is not just that. Hardly, in fact, worship is not a moment, but here it is. It's a manner. It's not a moment. It's a manner, a whole manner of life. That's because worship has a context. And here is where we are this morning. Worship has a context. We worship in the context of redemption. We worship in the context of redemption. Listen, any worship outside of the context of redemption is meaningless. It's meaningless. So negatively, this does, yes, mean. It means every good deed offered to God by the unbelieving neighbor. Hear me. The unbelieving neighbor that offers good deeds is meaningless. It's not put on a big scale in heaven. It it doesn't mean anything. In fact, the Bible makes pretty clear how descriptive those deeds are. But positively, Christian, that means that everything you do, blood-bought, purchased, covered in the blood of the Lamb, everything you do, Christian, is worship to God. Of course, we must be reminded of the New Testament imperative. Maybe it's going through your head right now. I appeal to you, therefore, the New Testament text says, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual worship. Romans 12, 1. That is true. That is full-bodied worship. That same truth In the New Testament here, an embryonic form is what we've studied this year in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words, that full-bodied conformity to God's standard, simply says, it's Israel, it's all of you. It's all of you. It's your whole life. It's not bits of worship, bits of moments given to God. No, it's all of you, heart and soul given to God. Worship, as we learned in the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, thus is a whole manner of life. A whole manner of life, beloved, lived rightly, fearing God and obeying Him. It is a life also that understands we need intercession in order to know God. We can't know God any other way. A holy life does not flippantly claim to know God and then live indifferently to evil. No, a holy life that worships God knows this. Exodus 20, verse 19. You speak to us. This is what the people are saying. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
Yes, a holy life like that then looks to Christ. As Jerry reminded us this morning, our great high priest, our mediator, our intercessor, everything we are, everything we do, everything we would do this morning is found in him and in our union with Jesus Christ. We need intercession. We need our great high priest. Because worship apart from Christ, beloved, is simply this. It's futile, let alone meaningless. And so we return to this context today. And I want us, I hope this is helpful this morning, to get us back into this and launch us forward, really. What we want to endeavor to do this morning is this text is setting us up for where we're going. I want you to think this morning of concentric circles. You know what I'm talking about, the circles around circles, rings within rings, even more. Let's make it super practical this morning. I want you to think about Russian nesting dolls. You know what I'm talking about there. The dolls within dolls. I think this is very helpful And I want you to get that picture in your mind. The big outer doll, the big outer ring as seen in Exodus is revelation. God revealing himself. And that is as we saw on the mountain, God revealing himself to his people. Because, beloved, nothing else happens if God doesn't come down. Listen, nothing happens if God doesn't initiate. Nothing happens. In chapter 3, we saw that God revealing, and that was the context. And we go inside now. To redemption. That would be the next layer, the next ring or doll, if you will. Revelation, redemption. Redemption, the deliverance that only happens for those that God comes to. Redemption happens, here it is, within the context of revelation. It is the only way. And of course, as you've seen and learned, within redemption is worship. A key inner ring if you will, only possible for the redeemed. Exodus has brought us there. That's been the trajectory in this book. And now it's about to unveil the next layer, if you will. Bound up within worship, defined by worship as this, it is law or command or word, as we've already begun to see. By way of the ten words, the principles of God's law, the words of life, they have a context and it's within worship. And do you see that? These are not just rules. Live by them. This is what this means to be God's people. Within the context of being people of God, within the context of worshiping God, this is how. Do you see that? This is how. This is how worship is defined. Again, worship always has a definition. Now, if you're struggling with that this morning... I ask you if Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons from Leviticus 10, would tell you otherwise. Would those two sons say that, no, you can give any worship you want to God? No. Aaron's sons were burnt up for offering wrong worship. Westmount, that's why these things are so important. Worship has terms. It has definition. Before we get into the specifics of that definition, the law, and more so the specific cases, or the inner dolls, if you will, which are by the way, which we'll see, cases, specific cases that we see in the law that are based on and flowing from the overall words and the principles. We're going to see nothing new here. Next week we're going to talk much about that. Disarming us a little bit from thinking that the law is just so out there. 
we're going to see that these specific cases for Israel flow from the ten words we've seen, the principle of who God is. But before we get there, starting next week, we arrive at this transitional text. In fact, even as you look down at it, you recognize it looks very much like a hinge piece at the end of chapter 20. And this text is so helpful as we return to our study because it will remind us in clear and concise terms of what we have learned already. It's so helpful this morning. And more, it will set us up for where we're going in the weeks ahead. And remember, Westmount, this is crucial. Do not lose the context. It's crucial for this section. These are words within worship, within redemption, within revelation. Thankfully, for the sake of time this morning, this is not a long text. Graciously, it's a text that's simply paving the way for us, a reminder. Nothing will surprise us here. Let's look at them and consider the words. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Father, we pray that we would take these words and learn that you would help us receive them. And now as we look to study them, Lord, you would help us live to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here, beloved, we see worship defined. And again, in our short time left, we're simply going to look at four important principles by way of reminder and by way of setup for where we're going. We're not going to linger too long here, so this is very fitting. It's just necessary reminders. And the first one is this. Of the four principles of worship definition, the first is this, worship responds to who is from heaven, from heaven. Look again at verse 22, Yahweh speaks to Israel through the intermediary, the intercessor, Moses, and God says emphatically, look at it in verse 22, that Israel, you have seen for yourselves, that's very emphatic, and what have they seen for themselves? God manifest on the mountain. Remember, we looked at that in chapter 19 and 20. And not only visually through flashes of lightning and smoke, but they heard him. The thunder, the trumpet, and of course the words. Whatever that looked like, that overall communication from heaven is what's in view here. And we know that it is in some way different to the case laws that we will begin next week. In fact, look at chapter 21 verse 1. They're set up very differently. Look at it. It says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. In other words, Moses, as you go down, you're going to set these before them. Very different to what we've seen in 19 and 20 as God reveals himself, remember, through a theophany there on the mountain. There Moses, and again, we'll be there next week, will set before them the specific cases. Here, the text says, they themselves have heard. Yahweh himself talking to them from heaven. And church, note this. We only want to point out what the text is showing us. It means that that is not from earth. Do you see that? It's not from earth. That is our God giving words where? 
from heaven. And we remind ourselves of this principle of worship. We're responding to God in our worship and God alone and his residence is in heaven. And why is that important this morning? Well, again, we've touched on this already. It bears repeating. You are not responding in your worship to earthly circumstances. You're not responding to earthly circumstances when you worship God. You're not responding to a big moment. You're not responding to big news. Listen to me. I'll tell you why. If that was worship, you would never, like Job, worship in the valley or the trial, would you? You're like, well, God, you've got to do something for me, and then I'll bust out the tambourine. You've got to do something for me. No. Worship is a 24-7 endeavor no matter what the circumstance. Do not, beloved, do that to your worship. You respond to the God from heaven who is, and here it is, grab peace from this. He is unchanging. He is immutable. He is eternal. Don't you want that today? Is not everything changing by the second? Don't you want a fixed anchor, an ancient of days to hang on to that never changes? Well, make that the fixed point of your worship. An unchanging God. That's the reason to worship. And listen, nothing changing is ever worthy of praise, is it? In fact, the more things change, the more we foster what? Fickle feelings in us. Is that not true? Nothing changing is ever worthy of praise. No, Christian, your worship is directed to he who never changes no matter what. Listen, whatever the circumstance, whatever the season, whatever the day, beloved, your worship is always a response not to the earth, not to the circumstance, but your worship is always a response to he who is from heaven. Always, every time. Worship in response to anyone else or anything else is not right worship. That's one. From heaven. Two, we worship not with idols. Look at verse 23. We worship not with idols. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. We're reminded of the ten words here, the opening commands from God, to have no rivals, no gods of silver to be set alongside with God, and to make no idols, no gods of gold. It's reminded in the passage Jeremy read for us, nothing changes, right? Over a millennia later, in Athens, they're doing the exact same thing, esteeming gods of gold and silver, right? Things, what did the text say, imagined in man's mind to worship. Nothing has changed. And as we learned earlier in our study, God is God alone. Not only are there no other gods before him, but again, he is God alone. And even more, we dare not make or fashion other gods to worship to. Gold and silver, of course, are the most precious metals of the ancients. Whether it's in Israel or Greece, or they still are, and they're still the very best of the earth. But listen, even the very best of the earth, regardless of how fashioned it is, is off limits to our worship. There's no excuses here, church. This worship principle is absolutely foundational. We worship not with idols. And we've covered this extensively when we went through the second commandment. We will see, as we commented earlier, maybe some well-intended Israelites, maybe, we don't know, maybe we'll see some violate this later. 
claiming worship to Yahweh, but erecting a golden calf in Exodus 32. And remember what that was. There was some right theology there, but very wrong worship. And we're again reminded, Westmount, we are not immune. You and I are not immune to this. How often do we offer up the very best of earth to God? We offer it up, and then what do we? We turn around, and then we worship it. How often do we do that? This is for you, God. And sometimes within days, we're worshiping it. No, idolatry is the worship of anything but God. Beloved, we need to be reminded it matters not what the item or the object is. Listen to me. It doesn't matter how precious it is, whether it's gold or rights or children. You don't worship it. You don't worship it. It matters not the intent, as well-meaning as it seems, right? And when you get to blood and precious things, you'd say, well, Lord, I mean well, but no, there are no excuses. You don't worship it. It's idolatry. And you flee from it. Beloved, let us remember as we continue on that we worship not with idols. That's two, three. We worship in every place. Look at verse 24. We worship in every place. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it. Your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God says to his people, look again, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it. Altar construction, although new to us here in this study, would not have been new to God's people. Consider for a moment to everything that comes before this chapter in Exodus. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all did what? They all built altars to the Lord. Now what is also noteworthy about the altars of Noah and the patriarchs is that they were in every place. Think about the altars that they built in every place that they were. Places where they were at the time. In fact, specifically, and note this, where the Lord caused his name to be remembered. You see that? For Noah, in Genesis 8, it was with a promise to never flood the earth again. So he's there on the mountains of Ararat, and there he erects an altar. For Abraham, was Genesis 12, with a promise to make of him a great nation. He was in Shechem, so there an altar goes in Shechem. For Isaac, Genesis 26, with a covenant reminder of multiplied offspring, lo and behold, he happens to be in Beersheba, and that's where the altar will be in Beersheba. For Jacob in Genesis 35, the place of the altar was Bethel, and it marked the occasion he was renamed to Israel. Now, it's true for a time under Solomon, most notably, and you're thinking of 2 Chronicles 4, God ordered a fixed bronze altar to be built in the temple in Jerusalem. That's true. Yes, however, that temple didn't exist here in Exodus, nor does it exist anymore. Of course, the temple in that sense will return in the future. As again, we're reminded by Jerry to look forward. The coming kingdom, the reign of God, Jesus Christ, the Son on earth. And that millennial kingdom, Ezekiel 40 to 48, talks of such a temple. And presumably all the pieces within it, altar and all. However, here in Exodus 20, for God's people, worship was decentralized in every place. And it's no different to today, by the way. We read, of course, in the New Testament that our bodies are living sacrifices. We read that in Romans 12. And I think also 1 Corinthians 6, it tells you, New Covenant Christian, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. 
And I think you take your body everywhere you go, in every place. And beloved, if the Holy Spirit is within us, everywhere we go, we recognize we have cause to remember God's name daily as we're moved to read his word, to pray to him and to serve him. And as we are caused to remember him and look to him, we have cause to worship. And the question is begged. How do you worship each day in light of that fact? How do you worship? What does your altar look like in every place you go? How do you worship, to put it pointedly, how do you, Christian, worship in every place where God causes his name to be remembered? What of your worship? What of your altar? Westmount, may this be found true of us, that we worship him in every place. Okay, one more key principle of worship here. We've looked at three. Last one. We worship not by the world. Not by the world. Look finally at verses 25 and 26. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build of it hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by my step by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. You're looking at that, and maybe at first glance, these final two verses may seem strange to you. Strange altar instructions. Look at it. Don't make the altar of hewn, that means cut, stones, or with the usage of any tools. You might even think, well, how am I going to make an altar if I can't pull out my tools and, and cut stones? And then look at this. Don't make the altar elevated. Don't include steps as to expose any nakedness. In other words, there would be no undergarments there. However, a deeper look that considers the culture that would not only surround Israel, but specifically as they would be preparing for Canaan. An understanding of everything that would have been around Israel is so helpful here. Let's consider the second command first. Look at it, verse 25 or 26. And the prohibition of steps and exposure. Ancient Near Eastern pagan worship often combined, often is an understatement, worship and sexuality. In fact, the two were just interwoven, sadly, in ancient pagan worship. The ancient priests wore nothing under their outer robe, nothing clinging to the skin. And cult priests exposing themselves would have been anything but accidental. We note maybe the hint of an accident here in the text, but listen, ancient cult priests, it was not that. And mere exposure was just the beginning of pagan perversion and worship, all manner of sexual perversion interwoven in their worship to false gods. Here, and note the principle, God says, don't even allow a hint of that. I don't want us to miss this, Westmount. Do you see what God is saying here? Anything that opens the door to even the hint of the association of Canaan, don't do it. Don't do it. In fact, by suggestion, sexual misconduct may not even be originally intended. You would say they just want to build steps. Yahweh, they just want to build steps. And God says, no, no. Note this principle, true for us today. Anything that gives the hint at all of immorality and what's improper, don't do it. Do you see that? God says, don't do it. Oh, how we could learn so much from this text. God says, no, I don't even want neutral things like steps associated with my worship because they could lead to something impure and wrong. Don't blend them. Don't blend them. 
It is the high steps. Look at Yahweh here. The high steps that could lead to the exposure, that could lead to the association with Canaan. And God is bluntly saying here, I don't want any pagan or Canaan association with my altars. By the way, to enforce this text, when we get to Exodus 28, you're going to see an interesting requirement for the priests. And you know what it is? Linen undergarments, close to the skin. That's Yahweh. Says these things matter. The division between these things matter. And we'll see that in Exodus, later in Exodus. Now, with that, we also have one other prohibition on altars found in verse 24 or 25, I'm sorry. God says, For stone altars, do not make with cut stone or your own tools. You see that? And really, you might say, What would be wrong with that? Well, we're looking specifically at this age and this time for Israel, like we will next week with the specific cases for a time and place. We're looking at this edict here for a time and place to Israel in this time. And in this time, Canaanite altars were primarily made of cut, finished stone. That was the custom. Very similar to Athens, as we heard this morning, right? Celebrating the imagination of man in their altars, in their idols. God says here, do not bring man's cutting and is finishing into this. That's Canaan. And that's not me. Only use what I have already provided for you. The natural uncut stone. Only use that. In fact, the text says this. To suggest you need to pull out your tools. And make my stones better. Well, that's akin to profanity. I give you bread from heaven. I give you water from the rock. And I give you the raw materials for altars of stone. Use them, and here it is, Westmount. Use them and do not add to them. Do not add to them. Why? Because the world, Canaan, does that. Canaan is in the business of adding to not just God, any deity. We need to add. Add to the Bible. Add to Sunday service. Add to worship. Add, add, add. The world and the worldly professing church always feeling that it needs to add something to the things of God. There is unending sad examples I could give, but we have, of course, covered this at length, particularly last summer. Westmount, our worship is not that way. We need to, and we need to do this vigorously, we need to pull the us out of worship. You know what I mean? We just need to get out of the way and give God what he is due. Give him pure worship. Take ourselves out of it. Westman, our God is holy. He is altogether other. He is not of this world. As such, we worship not by the world, but with what God gives. Beloved, we can never be reminded of these principles enough today. Because, listen... And I believe the evidence speaks for itself. Wrong worship is everywhere, is it not? It's everywhere. That is the plague today. As a lack of holiness grows, so does an indifference and a false sense of worship. Not us, beloved, not us. No, we will worship as God has defined his parameters, his holy parameters, not our earthly ones. 
And this is of huge importance. Why? Because remember, flowing out of worship in the context of worship is what? Instruction. Law. God's standard of how people are to live. That's the context of what we're about to see. In other words, if you're going to worship me, people, God says to Israel, this is how. And you can just imagine modern professions. No, but I don't feel like that. No, but my gut tells me this. Or no, but this is what they're doing in the church down the street. No, in the context of worship defined by God, God says, this is my instruction for you. Westmount, can it be true of us? Can it be true of us that we listen to his word, not our own internal machinations? And is it any wonder that those professing to worship God cannot live for him? How can we even begin to study God's standard, God's law, God's book, if we cannot even follow his prescription for living under him? And so we heed this critical reminder text today as we prepare for what's ahead. And indeed, beloved, we must prepare for what's ahead. There's much there that we would want to hang our heads about. The least of which would be laws that we may look at and not understand, and we'll get to those. But there's lots more beyond these walls coming. And again, as Jerry reminded us, we can have great hope because we have assurance in the one thing. We will be safe in the end. We will be okay. And it's not because of a professed, horizontal, artifice of love. It's because of the eternal love of God poured out onto his people through Jesus Christ. That's what we cling to today, and that's where we're going in the fall ahead. Father, we thank you that you have given us such assurance through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that we have great hope and security in a world, quite frankly, that's just become unraveled, that has absolutely no idea what is true, what is up, what is right. God, thank you. You've opened our eyes to this. Lord, help us, strengthen us, prepare us for all that's ahead as we seek to submit to your lordship in all things, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen.